Good morning. Welcome, everybody. My name is Tim Harris. I am pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church, and really, really glad that you're here. Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you reach in the pew in front of you. There should be a paperback Bible right there. If you don't have a Bible, take that one with you. That's yours. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1 is where we'll be. This is the second message in a series entitled Reflect. Reflect is an acronym, R-E-F-L-E-C-T. Each letter stands for a particular characteristic of a mature disciple of Christ. We're talking about Christian maturity and what it means to, to grow up, to grow to full maturity in Christ. Jesus gave the church one mission, one commission, and that was simply to make disciples of the entire world. Go you therefore, make disciples. That's our mission. That means that that's not just one of the things that Jesus wants the church to do. That is the thing that Christ wants the church to do. And if we do a lot of other things but don't manage to make disciples, we are failing in the one purpose, the one mission Christ gave us to do. So discipleship is all about bringing people to Christ and making them disciples, helping them to become followers of Christ, people who follow Christ and become like him. That's what a disciple is, one who follows Christ and becomes like him. This is the ordinary Christian life. It's not anything else. The Christian life is not walking an aisle one time and saying a prayer or being baptized at some point in your childhood and then living the rest of your life with no thought of Christ. The Christian life is a life of discipleship, and discipleship is a relational process where we, of course, love Christ first, but we love each other, and we invest in each other so that we all come to full maturity in Christ. So the question becomes, what does maturity look like? Well, what is maturity in a life like mine or yours? And that's what we're using reflect for. Reflect is a way of talking about those characteristics of a, of a mature Christian as we become more and more like Christ. Last week, we talked about the R of reflect, and the R stood for relationship, right? Relationship. We love God first. We love others. It's all about relationship. Today, we'll talk about the E, the first E in reflect, and the E is for evangelism. Evangelism. That's just simply the multiplication of disciples. It's the key to the Great Commission. We multiply disciples and therefore make disciples of the whole world. Uh, evangelism. Uh, evangelism. When it comes to evangelism in Scripture, you'll notice there's always a, a very important priority placed on the next generation. We want to make disciples of the whole world, but we always lean especially into our children, our grandchildren, the generations of those who come behind us. So today, let's talk about evangelism, and let's think especially about what it means to evangelize that next generation. And for that, we're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul's relationship with Timothy is one of the beautiful discipleship relationships that we have in Scripture. And it is that example of the older man who reaches back into the life of a younger man and brings him along in discipleship. It's a beautiful, beautiful model for us. So let's look together. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Going to start with verse 3. Read all the way into 2 Timothy 2, 2. And that's a key verse for today. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3. Timothy. I thank God for you, the God I serve with a clear conscience, just as my ancestors did. Night and day, Timothy, I constantly remember you in my prayers. I long to see you again, for I remember your tears as we parted, and I will be filled with joy when we're together again. I remember your, say the words, genuine faith. I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. 
This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. Let me say that again. Never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time. To show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. And God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of this good news. That is why I'm suffering here in prison, but I'm not ashamed of it, for I know the one in whom I trust, and I'm sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. Hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learned from me, a pattern shaped by the faith and love that you have in Christ Jesus. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. Down to chapter 2, verse 1. Timothy, my dear son, be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. You have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, that principle of passing on the faith to others. It's passed on person to person and that's how discipleship happens. If we're going to talk about discipleship in the next generation, then I want some help this morning. I have asked Nicole Buckland and Matt Betts to come up on the stage and to take this first part of the sermon with me. So guys, if you'll come on up. I am blessed to be at Woodburn at all, but blessed to be pastor and blessed especially to work with our staff. Nicole Buckman is one of the finest directors of children's ministries I've ever seen in my life. She is gifted, she is amazing, she's full of energy, and she loves our children with all of her heart. It's a blessing to work beside her. Matt Betts is the world's most dangerous student pastor. Uh, this guy is absolutely insane. I love working with Matt Betts every single day. He is passionate about the Lord. He is deep in his own discipleship, and he is exactly the man that we want to, uh, to, to, to lead our children, our youth, our young adults into a deeper discipleship with the Lord. So we show appreciation and welcome Matt and, and Nicole here. You guys know, that's from my heart, I love you with, uh, with, with everything. I, I love working with you so much. Uh, I appreciate you. Uh, Matt and Nicole are spiritual leaders of young people, so I just want you as we start the sermon to come back to this text with me that we just read, and tell me what stands out as people who work with young people. Nicole, we'll start with you. Uh, in this passage, what jumps out to you as one who works with children? Um, well, and I can remember when you came and told me this was the scripture you're going to be reading on, um, I, I remember saying to you, it's funny because we actually taught this scripture to our kids last fall, yeah. um, and I remember going over it. But uh, one of the first things, and, and it's near the beginning of the scripture you read, that jumped out at me is that Timothy got his faith from his family, from his grandmother and his mother. 
um, from their influence and the relationship that they had with him, they were able to demonstrate and influence his life uh, and his faith so that he would grow closer to the Lord. But it, it was really his family and just the influence that they had over his spiritual maturity. Um, and, and I've said it to you, I've said it to others before that I, I really believe what happens at home is far more important than what happens at church. Yeah, of course, we pay you for what happens at church. That you do. Uh, but that's amazing. And again, that's exactly, I, I think, the, the wisdom that we need in children's ministry, that the most important ministers of children are not those on the staff, but those at home, moms and dads uh, who disciple their own children. That is where uh, the real discipleship takes place at home. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Matt, what would you say? Uh, of course, number one, I love his descriptive terms of me as dangerous and insane. I don't know, even know what that's supposed to mean, yeah. but anyway. Uh, but, but we all know exactly what that means. <laughs> yeah, actually. you know what it means. Yeah. Uh, in, this, in this passage, what I can see, and I, and I love what Nicole said about the family, and it is that important. Family is, is that important in the spiritual lives of our children. Um, but I love it when the church can come alongside the family and, and ramp it up even more and just help and provide, provide assistance there. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and, and 2, you see that, that Paul was uh, very influential and very impactful in the life of Timothy. In fact, in verse number 1 of chapter 2, Paul even uh, refers to Timothy as his son. Uh, so you can tell that that was a, a, a really close relationship there. Paul walked with Timothy all the way through Timothy's life. He was always there for Timothy in the good times and the bad times. And then he says, Timothy, you need to be the same kind of person for somebody else. You need to, to go down another generation and reach the very next person for Christ and walk with them. They need to be your son in the faith and see the exact same thing happen. And it, it automatically reminds me of, of when I was a teenager and I had my youth pastor. His name was Randall Wright, and he... He did incredible things for my life. Uh, he spent time with me. He taught me. He took me to his house, and, and we ate. He took me on trips and, and this and that. And if it were not for him, uh, I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't be the man that I am today. I wouldn't be the husband or the dad that I am today without that man doing what he did in my life. And that's exactly what you see here. You see Paul doing that for Timothy, and then Paul saying, Timothy, you do it for somebody else. Yeah, it's that if discipleship is a relational process, that's the kind of relationship that the Holy Spirit uses. Uh, I would just say that the greatest honor that you could ever pay a man would be to say what Matt just said about Randall, and that is, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be the man I am without, without his influence. That's, that's amazing. Now, we're talking about discipleship as a, as a process of becoming mature believers. And this is the funny part. We're talking about maturity with, with young people who are by definition immature. Now, I've been to camp with teenagers. I have seen teenagers blow jello out their nose. I have seen teenagers run underwear up the flagpole. Uh, I, I've seen this. And so how do we even talk about maturity when we're speaking of children and, and others in their growing years, Nicole, again, you first. What would you say about that? How do we talk about maturing disciples? Well, I think the key word there is maturing. It, it's a process. And so like any other process, it has to start somewhere. Um, and I've said it all morning long. It, it starts with our babies and our newborns that come into our church. Um, many of them find their way back to the nursery. And we have... Uh, loving and nurturing people back there who are um, demonstrating for them God's love. And, and for a lot of our newborns and our infants, that that is their first encounter of God when they come to church, is 
how they are cared for, um, how they are spoken to and sung to um, by our nursery volunteers and, and our servant leaders back there. Um, so really, those are the foundations that we are getting to build with them, um, helping them to see that God is a loving God and that he wants, <clears throat> excuse me, that he wants the best for them. Um, but really, if you look at preschool as a whole, it's a, it's a time where kids are just sponges and they are able to soak up so much information um, and we can really pour into them and help them lay those strong foundations uh, of biblical truths that God made them, God loves them. And, and that he wants to be their friend like no other friend that they, they're ever going to have. Yeah. If we're talking about evangelism, then in preschool, a lot of what we're doing is, is pre-evangelism. It is. Sort and of preparing the ground for seeds of the gospel. It is. Um, it, and really, I compare it to my gardening. And if any of you understand gardening, I went out yesterday and picked banana peppers, but they didn't just show up. We had to tend to the soil and prepare it and plant the seeds and water it and take care of it. And that's really what our preschool department is all about. Uh, our preschool ministry takes the time to pour into kids and help them grasp those key concepts of who God is and, and that he's a real God and a big God. And he can do big things. And, and we question them and talk with them to make sure they're understanding that. So that when they progress into our children's ministry, our elementary ages, um, we can talk with them even more and help them uh, in a direction to make a decision for Christ. Because in a, in a lot of our minds, that's really where it begins is once they've made that decision. But there's so much work being done up until that point. Mm -hmm. um, but that's one of our goals for our children's ministry is to see children come into a, a knowing relationship with God where they can say, I trust him. I trust him no matter what's going on in my life. Um, where they learn that God loves them and so that they ought to love others and treat others the way they want to be treated mm -hmm. and that they start going to God in prayer and looking in his word for help to make wise choices. Yeah. So the best thing we can do with children is to set their feet on the very first steps of the path to discipleship that will last their whole lives. Right. It, like I said, it's very foundational, um, but it it's like prime real estate. I mean, you you can't pick a better time in a child's life yeah. to really train them and teach them who God is and to show them who God is yeah. and help them to discover that, except for when they're young. Those learning, growing years are vital. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Matt, you and I talk a lot about youth ministry. I love youth ministry. Uh, remember, Matt Betts, his job description, he takes young people from seventh grade through young adulthood. So we give them to him in seventh grade. Matt gives them back to us when they're like 26. And so all of those years are really, really big years. Uh, in seventh grade, girls still have cooties. You, you know that, right? Seventh grade. But then in, in student ministry, they'll have their first dates. They'll go through high school. And ultimately, perhaps by the end of your ministry, you could perform their weddings. And so they do all those very important growing uh, processes and years through there under your ministry. So again, how do you talk about maturing disciples when the change is just so dramatic and rapid? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a daunting task when you put it that way. So th thanks for depressing me. No, I'm just kidding. But it, it, it really is. It is a huge task because you, you think of a seventh grade boy or girl and what they become over, the, over those years. And it is amazing to see the process and, and how that happens. Nicole kept saying a, a phrase or a word that is, that is vitally important. She kept saying foundation and foundational. Um, the youth ministry is designed to, to build upon that foundation. 
she lays the groundwork and, and teaches them concepts about who God is and, and what he's like and who they are in God's eyes. And we come along and try to build on top of that and, and help them to realize it and help them to grow and help them to process what's been taught as a, as a child and to see it really come into fruition as they, as they uh, get into middle school and high school and young adulthood and see them acting it out and living out those concepts that, that were set so long ago in, in the children's ministry. For instance, when a seventh grader comes in, uh, you can take the concept of love, which is one of the fruits, fruit of the spirit, and a seventh grader is naturally going to love those who love them back and are kind to them and give them things and, and show them that love back. But what I want and what we want to see and what we think a, dis a maturing disciple looks like is a seventh grader naturally loving people who love him should, by the time they leave 12th grade as a high school graduate, they should be able to not only love those who love them, but also love those who hate them and those that despise them and those who walk all over them and those who aren't in their group. That's what we want to see. That's what we think a maturing disciple looks like inside of the youth ministry. That by the time they, no matter how strong they are when they enter seventh grade in the youth ministry, by the time they're in 12th grade, they should be stronger. More like every, Christ. And more like Christ in yeah. every single area and characteristic that we have. Another one's peace. You know, a, a kid, a seventh grader is going to have peace in the, the, the easiest times of life, naturally. It's going to be peaceful. But what we want is as a 12th grader, they've grown constantly through that, that ministry, and they can have peace then in the most difficult days of their, their high school career, the most difficult days of their family life. They can still find peace and still have trust because the foundation has been laid since they were a kid of how to trust God and what it means to trust God. But we want them when it actually has to be trust and has to have peace it to be there naturally and it's flowing out of their life and they're growing in that so that's exactly what we want we want them growing to be more and more like christ it is a huge responsibility and obligation so let me just ask you matt will do you first are we succeeding as a church in our ministries do you think that we're we are turning out uh and developing students to be more and more like christ number one you know if you've gone to Woodburn very long at all, you, re you realize that Woodburn is an incredible church full of incredible families, incredible people. There's very few churches like this in the United States. It really, really is not. And uh, the truth is we've got incredible workers, youth workers, all the way down the list of my, all my workers. They're just great people. In the last service, we had an, it was an honor to sit in cafe, and, and Frank Wright was sitting right there. And a lot of you know Frank. Uh, some of you had him in youth group and things like that. And the truth is, is he was an incredible youth worker, incredibly relational, and laid a lot of the foundation of that we're reaping today because of what he did in, in our ministry here. So it was just great to be part of that. But the truth is, is, is we do see disciples. We see people become disciples of Christ and followers of Christ. But we can always do better. The truth is, a lot of times throughout the youth ministry, uh, kids will fall through the cracks and uh, some will waver, and some will just lose completely. But, but that should not be the case. The majority of our youth, in fact, all of our youth, should have the opportunity to have people around them that help them along the way. So the, the answer is, yes, we see disciples made, but not enough, and not the majority. And we can always do better for the future. Yeah. Nicole, what would you say? Are we doing it in children's ministry? Are we putting them on a strong path to be like Christ? 
I, I would agree with Matt. In a lot of ways, we are. We have wonderful leaders in, in both youth ministry, children's ministry, and preschool um, that truly care about the spiritual maturity of our, of our children and our teens. Um, like, like Paul says, we have leaders that are teaching our kids and our youth to hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching. Um, we have we have some that are demonstrating that and if you look out at any of our three services You see families that have grown up in Woodburn Baptist Church and they are here and they're bringing their children and they're faithful So I, I would agree with Matt. Yes, we 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 are succeeding however, we do have an opportunity ahead of us. We have the next generation that's coming up. Um, and, and with every generation, there's gonna be another one to follow them. And those generations are changing. So the way we reach them may not look like the way we were reached growing up in the church. Um, and, and that excites me because it, it's just more and new opportunities to reach and spread the gospel and yeah. to pass it on. That's, 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 so, that's, that's so very, very good. I, I love that. Um, in the scripture, Paul talks about wanting to fan the flame. In other words, there's a flame burning in Timothy uh, that started even before Paul came along, but he wants to pour gas on that fire and see it come to full, uh, to, to full blaze. So in our ministries, in our disciple-making obligations as a church, how can we just pour gas on the fire? How can we strengthen these efforts? And Nicola, I'll ask you to go first. How do we, how do we just continue to... Um, capture and gain momentum with our kids? I think a lot of it really comes down to leveraging the relationships that we already have in place. Uh, first and foremost, the family. Really supporting parents and, and helping to define that they are spiritual leaders. And for a lot of families and a lot of parents, that's, that's a really scary term because they don't always look at themselves that way. But I think as, a, as our role in the church that we can partner with them and help them to figure out that they can be spiritual leaders to understand what that means and their responsibility in that. Um, I think part of that is also resourcing them so that they're comfortable with talking, their, talking with their children about spiritual matters and talking about God and, and even leading their children to Christ. Um, I would love to see more of our families doing that and, and helping them do that. So our church's ministry gains momentum when we strengthen the spiritual life of families at home. Correct. And part of the way that we do that also is um, pairing consistent leaders with our children here at the church um, because it, it goes back into those leaders being able to pour into the lives of the parents. And at a conference I was at recently, they said, um, if you care about the lives of your children, then you need to care about the marriage of the parents of your children. Yeah, nothing's more important. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's so good. Uh, Matt, what would you say? How can we pour gasoline on the fire of, of what we're trying to do in the lives of the teens? Yeah, part of, you know, the success of Woodburn Baptist uh, is the people that we have, the families that we have. And a lot of times what we see happening, and, I, and I've said this a couple of times already, we, we don't see the majority of our youth really being super strong by the time they leave youth ministry. We see a number of them. You saw a number of them up here this morning leading worship, and yeah. the same thing was going on in CAFE. We had another group in there leading worship that were some of our young people. And the truth is, a lot of times uh, we have that happen, 
uh, but it's not as on purpose and as intentional and as relational as we'd like to see. So some people fall through the cracks. It's more on accident than it is on purpose. So to help the momentum uh, of this to happen is more relational, more intentional, more on purpose discipleship of kind of putting those people around our youth uh, that will help them in a, you know, in a longer period of time and a stronger, uh, stronger atmosphere. So that's, that's probably what would help the momentum the best. Yeah. All right, last question. Uh, uh, the single thing, and Matt, we'll start with you. If there's one prayer you could pray, a miracle prayer that something God could give that would uh, absolutely strengthen uh, the way we make disciples with teenagers, if there's just one thing that we could do differently, what would be the one thing that we could that we need to incorporate? I, I would say, if I had a dream, you know, of our youth ministry, I would I would want more intentional, more relational small groups to happen. Right now, uh, probably the biggest, if you ask any of our teenagers that have been a part of our two biggest events, which are camp during the summer and D-Now during the spring, um, that, you know, we, if you know anything about D-Now, it is huge, and we have big services, and we bring in a band, and we spend a whole lot of money on that band, and we spend a whole lot of money on a, on a great speaker, and, and we do a whole lot of things, but every single teenager always comes back to the small group time. They love those, those leaders, and they love their small group, which their small group's like six, six teenagers. They love that. And they, they'll talk about that for months and months and months because of the contact and, the, and the, the influence that that person, that leader, and those kids have had on them. In fact, camp's coming up, and, and they're putting down who they want to room with. And there's been like a dozen already that come up to me and say, can we just have the same, D, same group for camp as we had for D-Now? Hmm. Because they made those connections. And so my dream would be to have more and more of that. Right now we've got Sunday school where it's like 25 kids and, and one teacher, and it's more like a curriculum-based thing. I would love to have more relationship-based uh, small groups with six to eight kids and, and a couple of adult leaders where they follow those kids throughout a season of their life. So not just a week or two. It'd be like months and months and years down the road, ninth through 12th grade, where you have the same leaders and you have the same group and just building that and intensifying that relationship together. Hmm. Walk, just walking life together, basically. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I wish we could do that. Uh, Nicole, what would you say? One thing that would uh, strengthen the momentum of children's ministry. Uh, what would be the prayer you'd pray or the thing you'd ask God for? Um, really, I have to echo Matt. It, it's clearly defined, consistent small groups. Um, not only do I want to place leaders with a small group of kids, you know, around six, um, but I want them to be able to create a safe place for their kids to build those relationships with them where they can be open about things going on in their life and, and um, receive and, and be open to the doubts and the fears and the questions that kids have about the things going on in their lives. Uh, additionally, we have large classes. We have anywhere from 17 to, to 25 kids in class, and it is hard. But the other great thing when you break them down into those small groups is that you empower the leader and give them more leverage to reach the families. Mm -hmm. um, so we're still taking that small group and then uh, just building on it and building the possibilities that come with true small group discipleship. Yeah, because the relationships that are ingredient to disciple making seem to happen best in a smaller group setting. Right, and when you when you take those leaders and you give them and you give them a group of kids for any amount of time, say it's 
say it's a group that follows um, from first grade, second grade, third grade. That's, that's a three-year span where kids are drastically changing from first grade to third grade. Uh, and, and you give a leader the opportunity to really invest and pour into those kids, it's going to have an overflow effect into the families and into their homes. Yeah. Well, uh, I love you guys so much. I appreciate your passion. Uh, we want you to succeed uh, for the sake of our kids, for the sake of the gospel and, and the next generation. Uh, so God bless you guys. Uh, show some appreciation for, for Matt and Nicole. Thank you, guys. Let me very, very quickly call your attention back to the text and hit some key points uh, b b before we uh, move on in response. First off, 2 Timothy chapter 1, go back with me. Um, very, very important task here to pass the faith along to the next generation. It is always the responsibility of the church to do so. I've said before, others have said, uh, the church is always one generation away from extinction. In other words, if we fail to pass the faith along to this next generation, then this church just dies. You understand? We're always one generation away from extinction. We must pass the faith along. And it's the very same tension that you find here in the book of Timothy. It's the same responsibility that Paul has to pass the faith along to others. The question becomes, how do you do that? About 25, 30 years ago, my great-grandmother, her name was Aggie Mays, and uh, Grandma Mays was about this tall, uh, really sweet lady. She was, she was a lot of fun, oldest lady in the world to me. She was, you know, 500. Uh, but, but she moved 90 miles an hour. She just worked. She was fast. And it, it, it came upon her about 30 years ago to start an annual family reunion on Labor Day. And so it was the Mays reunion. So I have my great-grandmother and my grandmother and her sister. So there's this whole generation of older aunts and grandmothers. And, and they sort of uh, really put everything into this family reunion, getting all of us together. Now, the cool thing about it 30 years ago was that Grandma Mays and Grandma Pearson and Aunt Barbara and all these older aunts, they did everything. They cooked all the food. They would call the Franklin Parks and Rec and get the pavilion, and they would cook everything, and that's great, and, and they'd get everything ready. The kids, and I was a kid 30 years ago, we'd just show up. We'd just show up right about lunchtime, because why would you come any earlier? We would just come at lunchtime. We would bring nothing, and then we'd just eat lunch. We'd hang out a while. We would kind of sometimes say under our breath, who are these people? You know, who are these people? And my mother would say, shut up, it's your family. Say, but who are these people? And then after a certain amount of time, we just sort of leave until next year when great-grandmother and grandmother and aunts would all bring us back together. Here's the thing. 30 years later, Aggie Mays is gone. My great-grandmother is gone. And so is my grandmother and Aunt Barbara and so many of those older ladies who always made this happen. They're gone. Now it really is down to us, the kids. We are now that generation supposed to be in charge. And just suffice it to say, this family reunion is in trouble. It's in trouble because that third generation, the grandkids, we didn't manage to, to, to capture everything that, that our parents probably should have passed on to us. We're not cut out of the same cloth as that older generation. And so there are some things that may get dropped. Now, that's the family and the family reunion. But, but more importantly, if you're talking about the gospel, the gospel can't be dropped we cannot fail to pass the gospel on to the next generation. We simply cannot fail. So how does it happen? How is it passed along? Well, two things, and Matt and Nicole already stole all my thunder, two things. The, the first thing the Holy Spirit uses is the family. 
Paul says to Timothy, I see your faith and I recognize your faith because I saw that faith in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. It's familiar to me because it's the same genuine faith. And that's the word he uses there in verse 5. It's a sincere, it's a genuine faith. Paul says it's the real thing. You got the real thing from your grandmother and from your mother. I, I recognize it. So you've got to understand, the Holy Spirit uses families to pass on genuine faith. But I guess we could go so far as to say uh, all other kinds of faith get passed along too. That's the problem. Not all of our parents had genuine faith. And they passed something else along to us. But, but, but here's what you need to understand. Whether your faith is, is real or fake, whether you're a hypocrite or a genuine disciple, whether you're true or false, your faith will be revealed for what it is at home. Whether it's true or false, your kids will know. They'll recognize it. Your husband knows, ma'am, whether your faith is real or not. Everybody knows whether you're the same people at home that you are at church. Your kids see this. You understand? When I first became a father, my fear was that I'd never be able to teach this kid anything, that he'd never follow me, he'd never listen to me. And then once you begin raising a, a son or a daughter, you begin to realize, oh my goodness, the real terror is that they do listen to me. They really do. I have tremendous influence over these people that live in my house, and they will inevitably become a whole lot like me. That's scary. Your children will follow you, and they will inherit your faith from you. So the question you have to consider is, as your children follow you, will they end up following Jesus? In following you, are you leading them to Christ? And the really frightening thing is that many, many of us simply are not. Our kids know who we really are, and they are going to imitate us. Paul said, Timothy, your faith is familiar to me because it's the same real thing I saw in your mother and your grandmother. No, I just got to stop right there and ask you, who's, who's missing? When he says, man, it was the faith that filled your grandmother and then filled your mother, now it's in you. Who's missing? There, there's no mention of dad. Not a single word about grandfather or, or father. Now, there were no test two babies at that point, so I'm pretty sure Timothy had a father and a grandfather, but... Either they died, maybe a neutron bomb went off in their house and killed all the men, or else when you tell the spiritual story of Timothy, you don't have anything to say about the contribution of his dad. Where's the father in this picture? And in so many of our homes, where's dad? And those of you men in this house, I just have to ask you, you may be present in so many ways. You're at every single ball game, and you're always in front of the television. You never seem to miss a meal at the table, but, but you're absent when it comes to the spiritual life of your children. Somehow you're just assuming that's mama's job or even grandmother's job, but where are the men? Timothy has no story to tell. There's no kind of influence that you can point back to and say, yeah, he got that from his father. As an influence for Christ, Timothy's father made no contribution. Sir, one of these days, somebody's going to look at your son and say, man, I tell you, you're just like your daddy. Is that going to be a compliment? When people look at your children and say, yeah, you know, that's the same kind of faith that I saw in your daddy, 
Are they going to be saying something good about your children and you? Thank God for Lois and Eunice, I guess we say. Thank God for those who manage to pass the faith along. God help us men who don't manage to, uh, to step up and teach anything to our children. God uses the family. He also uses the church. Now, in the same way that Timothy's father seems to be somehow absent spiritually, it's this amazing way that he meets this man at church, and it's Paul. I know you're thinking, well, but these are Bible characters. It's Paul. He's a, he writes books of the Bible. Well, no, not then. I mean, he was writing these things then. But to Timothy, Paul was just a man he met at church. And Timothy was just a kid that Paul saw at church. But something happened. I mean, when, when Paul looked at Timothy, he just sort of saw a son. He just saw a son. And while Timothy's father was never any kind of spiritual influence, Paul's able later to say, Timothy, you're like a son to me in the faith. And, and Paul becomes a spiritual father. That's beautiful. And that's what happens at church. Notice how Paul influences Timothy. Look back at verse 3. He says, night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. I pray for you, Timothy, night and day. Again, not his father, not his uncle, not anybody. He has no obligation to this young man except that somehow he just adopts Timothy. He just begins to, to carry him in his heart and pray for him night and day. That's amazing. That's beautiful. He prays for him, and then he makes sure Timothy knows that he prays for him. That's powerful. But then he goes on. He goes on to say, I, I, I remind you to fan into flame the spiritual gift God gave you when, when I laid my hands on you. And God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, timidity, but power, love. I mean, listen to just how he speaks into this young man's life. And, and he goes back to common experiences. Timothy, I was there the night. I laid my hands on you, and, and I know what God's put in you, and I just want to see it fan into flame. I want to pour gasoline on the fire that the Holy Spirit has set in you. I and mean, isn't that amazing? Paul's able to see in Timothy what Timothy can't probably even see in himself. And Paul says, oh, I just, I just want to see all of it come into fulfillment in your life. Don't you think every single kid growing up in Christ deserves somebody like a Paul in their life? I would say most of you in this house, those of you who are on the path of discipleship and those of you who are living a vibrant life for Christ today, most of you would point back and say, yeah, I am here because of her. I am here because of that man. They believed in me. They prayed for me. They, they confronted me. I, I'm here because of them. Man, we just need a whole lot of Pauls to step up in the lives of Timothys in this church. You know what I'm saying? Because the Holy Spirit uses families first, but he uses the church too. It's 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Let me close here. You've heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who are going to be able to pass them on to others. Do not be ashamed to tell others about our Lord, Paul says to Timothy. You tell somebody who's going to tell somebody, and that's how disciples get multiplied. Now, we're not just talking about children and family. We've talked a lot about that tonight. But don't, for a moment, imagine that our obligation is just inside our house. Jesus' commission was to make disciples of the entire world. How do we do that? Well, we do it by doing it. 
We make disciples who make disciples. We follow Christ in such a way where we become more like Christ. And in Jesus' own words, the, the true disciple is reproductive. We bear fruit. And when we begin to bear fruit, when we begin to reproduce ourselves, then we're true disciples. So that path of discipleship for every single one of us leads us to eventually making other disciples, telling others, pouring into others what somebody else poured into us. That's not just an option for those who really want to go far in the Christian life. This is the Christian life. It has to do with evangelism. It has to do with making other disciples. I asked Warren this past week to help me. Warren Weeks, he's the brain behind this whole operation. Y'all know that, right? Uh, I asked Warren to help me out with the math because I'm, I'm, I'm not so sharp in, in those things. But Warren and I were working out a, a math problem. And the question was, Warren, if, if about... 20% of our congregation got really serious about making disciples, what would happen? 20%. 20%, if, if this Sunday's typical, we'll have somewhere, we'll say 600 people worshiping here today in all the services. So 20% of 600 is 120? Yeah, thank you, Warren. 120. Yeah, so 120, that's one out of every five of us. That's sort of lame, but we'll start there. If one out of every five of us got very serious in discipleship, so serious that we began to mature and we began to lead others to Christ, okay? Not talking about all of us, I'm talking about 120 of us, one out of five. So if 120 of us began to make other disciples, let's say that we were able to lead one person to Christ a year. Not every day, just a year. One person a year, every year of our lives. That means you get to take a lot of days off, but in the course of a year, you lead somebody to Christ, but not just get them to say a prayer. You're not making church members, you're making a disciple. So actually, you're going to lead somebody to Christ who's going to mature, and they're going to lead somebody to Christ. We're just going to say one person a year. So you see, we're going to make disciples, lead one person a year, who that person will go on to lead another person per year, and that's how it multiplies. Okay, what I asked Warren was, if we lead one person a year, 120 of us, and that person leads a person a year, what would that look like over 18 years? And I chose 18 years because that's, that's how long it would take a kid in the nursery today to graduate high school. So in that time span between a kid in the nursery, back there pooping her diapers right now, and graduates high school in 18 years, what would be the impact of 120 of us leading one person a year and that person leads a person. And you know what the number is? 16 million. 16 million people. If only one out of every five of us led one person a year to the Lord, and that person would, would become a genuine disciple who leads another person per year, in, in 18 years, we could lead 16 million people to Christ. That means in our lifetimes, we could win the world. Just one out of every five of us who got serious, we could literally change the world, win the world in our lives. Now, on the one hand, that encourages me because it makes the Great Commission sound incredibly possible. And Jesus wouldn't ask us to do it if it weren't going to be possible. It's possible to win the world in our lifetime. We could do that. And that's exciting. And it doesn't really sound like a lot of work. I mean, 16 million, if we lead one person a year, we could take some whole years off and still lead millions to Christ. Do you understand that? It's exciting. And then it's devastating to think about. 
It's devastating because when you realize how simple that is, and then you realize that in all of the years that have passed since Jesus gave the Great Commission, it's never happened. It's never happened. There doesn't seem to have been 120 people ever who got serious enough as to lead one person a year to Christ. It doesn't seem like it's ever happened. If that had ever happened, the whole world would know Jesus now. It's never happened. I want to be that church. I want to be in that 120 people that could change the world in our lifetimes. I, I want to follow Christ like that. Don't you? Don't you understand that it's not like an option that you're being given? Either you'll follow Christ or you won't. Either you'll grow in Christ or you won't. But there is no half in, half out kind of option. Either you're following him and becoming more like him or you're not. And if you're not following him and becoming more like him, and if that process of discipleship doesn't lead you ever to try to talk to somebody else about the gospel that supposedly has changed your life, then there's something profoundly wrong with what you're calling your Christian life. It is about discipleship. It is about one single mission to make disciples. And no matter what else our church does, if we don't make disciples, we fail. But the same is true for your personal life. You have one mission, to follow Christ and become like him. And in that process, to share with others what's been shared with you. To be a part of multiplying disciples in the world. You have one purpose, one mission. And no matter what else you accomplish with all of your life, if you don't become a disciple who makes other disciples, you fail. You fail. A disciple is one who follows Christ and becomes like him. It is the most joyful thing in the world to know Jesus, to love him, to be loved by him. To have that love and that peace that Matt Betts was talking about, that that comes only from Jesus. To know that even when I sin, even when I fail, and I fail a lot, that, that I can come back to Christ and have forgiveness. I don't have to live with guilt and shame. I don't have to live with fear. I have Christ. And, and if I know all of that and, and, and I don't love people enough to share that with them, then there's something profoundly wrong with my heart. Don't be ashamed to tell others about our Lord, Paul says Timothy. As a matter of fact, don't you tell others who will go and tell others. And that's how we win the world. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we can talk about winning the world all day long, Lord. For some of us, it's too much to ask that we walk down the hall and start a conversation with our kid. Some of us, Lord, would talk to total strangers before we would be able to talk to our family members about what Jesus means to us, Lord. There's something wrong. There's something wrong with us, Lord. 
Help us to become disturbed by the lack of passion in our hearts. Help us to become disturbed by the fact that we go entire years and never lead anybody to Jesus. We never even speak his name. Lord, help us to become dissatisfied with what we've come to consider the ordinary Christian life, Lord. Help us instead to find a path of true discipleship where we follow you and become like you and lead others to know you. Lord, we love our kids. We pray for our kids. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you help us not to fail in this giant task, which is to pass the faith along to them. Lord, we work very hard to see that they learn soccer and that they make good grades in school. We work very, very hard to make sure they get into a good college, but we don't seem to care that they stay out of hell. God, help us. But help us, Lord, not to limit our vision to those inside our own families. Help us, Lord, to see the world and love the world as you see and love the world. Help us, Lord, to understand our great mission, which is to win the world for you. Help us, Lord, to do our part as your disciples to make other disciples. We pray this in the name of Jesus for the sake of the world. Amen. I ask you to stand. I ask you to respond. I don't know what you need to do, but you probably know. The altar's open if you want to come and pray. Maybe you need to recommit your life as a disciple to following Christ, to becoming like him, and to leading others to know him. Don't know what you need to do. Maybe you've never in your entire life surrendered yourself to him. Maybe today is the day you begin this path of discipleship that we've been talking about. You got to start somewhere. Maybe today's the day you start. I just ask you not to walk out of this place and not make your peace with the God who loves you. If you have a public decision to make, I'm at the front to receive you. If you have a physical need for healing, the deacons will meet you on the baptistry side to pray for you. Whatever your need, please come to the Lord. Bring somebody with you as we sing. Guys. I hear the Savior say Thy strength indeed is small Child of weakness watch and pray Find in me thine all in all paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed white as Send in him 
Jesse, Trevor, Tom, Mark, thank you all. Trevor, we will not embarrass you by pointing out how many of us changed your diapers and talking about how, how proud we are of you. God bless you. We love all of you. Thank you for leading us so well in worship. Uh, Brother Warren, Brother Rod, take us out. Okay, I'll go. Next weekend, the New Way Singers will finally be here. I asked them to come back in like October. I am so excited that next Saturday night at South Warren High School, 68 or so folks who are leaving Nebraska Christian College on Wednesday and making their way here will be here to sing for our community. 7 o'clock Saturday night at South Warren High School. At about 8.30, those folks are going to need somewhere to sleep. If you can help out with that and you haven't already said that you could, would you see me right after church? And I will make sure that you get assigned one or two or four or I think last Sunday I said 17. That may be a slight exaggeration. But we need to have places for those folks to sleep. I think it's 67 total who are coming, about 55 in the choir. This is going to – when I saw this choir in Lexington, Kentucky four years ago, it changed my life. I'm telling you what, this is an amazing group of young people. I can't wait for you to hear them. 7 o'clock, South Warren High School, Saturday night. There's kind of a big deal wedding happening here next weekend, and we're not going to interfere with that in the least. You'll have plenty of time to be at the wedding, go to the reception, and still come to the concert or at least house some folks afterwards. And then they'll be here 
in the sanctuary at 8.30, and they'll be leading in the cafe service at 9.45, and they'll be in the sanctuary at 11 o'clock next Sunday morning. So next weekend, great time with the New Way Singers from Nebraska Christian College in Omaha, Nebraska. And yes, it's really in Nebraska, but they're amazing. 